Chapter 12. Has the Kingdom Come? A number of primary references to the Kingdom deserve to be advanced to the forefront of the discussion about Jesus' message. I quote, There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the Kingdom of God, but yourselves being cast out. And they will come from the east and west, and from north and south, and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. That's Luke 13, verses 28 and 29. Another quote. Truly I say to you, I shall never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Mark 14, verse 25. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Luke 22, verse 18. Another quotation. When you see these cataclysmic events of the end of the age, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. Luke 21, verse 31. May thy kingdom come, Matthew 6, verse 10. Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the kingdom of God. That's in Mark 15, verse 43, and Luke 23, verse 51. The kingdom sayings listed above provide simple evidence that Jesus was looking forward to the advent of the kingdom. This fact bears directly on the content of the Gospel. It's easy to demonstrate from Scripture that Jesus built his whole mission and ministry around the Kingdom idea. It is therefore disconcerting, to say the least, that modern evangelism has little or nothing to say about the Kingdom. It appears that the Gospel itself is in jeopardy when the Kingdom is absent from the message. The honest seeker for truth will find this startling difference between what Jesus and the Apostles taught as the good news and what is now presented as the Gospel. They will find this a stimulus to dig further in the quest for the authentic voice of Jesus in Scripture. It is commonly agreed by commentators on the New Testament that the kingdom of God has a present and future reference in the teaching of Jesus. Attempts to define the kingdom more precisely are plagued by a tendency to focus almost exclusively on the present aspect of the kingdom. The future kingdom is usually dismissed with a vague reference to its, quote, consummation. It is impossible to grasp the meaning of Jesus' favorite term, Kingdom of God, unless we pay full attention to the overwhelming volume of references to the Kingdom of God as an event of the future. It appears to be a dislike of this essential New Testament fact, which causes Bible readers to fix on Luke 17, verses 20 and 21, as their favorite kingdom texts. Here's how that one reads. Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, 
Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. That was Luke 17, verses 20 and 21. Reading this text to the exclusion of scores of verses which describe the kingdom as a future fact associated with the second coming, one might conclude that the kingdom was first and foremost present in its king, Jesus, or following the King James Version of Luke 17:21, that it is, quote, within you, that's to say, in your heart. If the immediately following context of Luke 17, verses 21, is taken into account, it becomes clear that the coming of the Son of Man which Luke elsewhere says is the coming of the kingdom, Luke 21, verse 31, it will be, quote, just like lightning when it flashes out of one part of the sky and shines to the other part of the sky. On the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. That's Luke chapter 17, verses 24, 29, and 30. In a later chapter, Luke reports Jesus as saying, And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars, and upon the earth dismay among nations, in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear, and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. That's from Luke Chapter 21, verses 25 to 31. With this evidence before us, it is impossible to confine the kingdom of God to the presence of the Messiah in Palestine in the first century, much less to a religious ideal established in the heart or a post-mortem place for souls. The kingdom of God for Luke and the other New Testament writers is primarily the rule of God to be imposed upon a wicked world by the powerful intervention of Jesus at the end of the age. If we do not reckon with this fundamental Old and New Testament fact, we strip the teaching of Jesus of its motivating dynamic, the need for us all to prepare now for, quote, the great and terrible day. Joel 2, verse 31. We must all face the Messiah and give an account of our deeds. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Either through resurrection or survival until the coming of Jesus. Has the kingdom come? It's important that we examine the massive evidence for the kingdom of God as a new stage of world history to be introduced at Jesus' return. To speak of this, as so many textbooks do, 
as the, quote, consummation of the kingdom, conveys very little meaning. The New Testament says that the present evil age is going to be consummated, that's to say, come to its end, according to Matthew 24, verse 3, when Jesus returns. The kingdom of God will at that time be manifested publicly. It will then be inaugurated as the governing body of the new age. Since the kingdom comes into power only when Jesus comes back, it is confusing to say that it has already come. Its coming lies in the future. We are to pray continuously, quote, Thy kingdom come. We must guard against watering down the significance of this petition by making it mean something like, May thy kingdom grow, or may thy kingdom spread, or may thy kingdom be perfected. For Jesus and the disciples, the kingdom has not yet come. Christians are to long for its coming and pray for it to be established so that God's, quote, will may be done on earth. The petition contains the perfect definition of the kingdom. It's a state of affairs on earth when God's ways will be followed. That state of affairs, however, cannot possibly be realized worldwide until the banishment of Satan from his present position as, quote, God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. The deposing of Satan must, in the divine plan, await the return of the Messiah. Such is the, quote, philosophy of history, which permeates the whole New Testament. The attempts of professing Christians to bring in the kingdom before the predetermined time must end in failure. Jesus operated always within the consciousness of what must be in God's purposes. Christendom as a whole has ignored the divine program and has even attempted, since the time of Constantine, to establish itself as the kingdom of God, ruling now, sometimes in partnership with the secular state. Such a thing is impossible within the worldview of the New Testament. Satan is the, quote, ruler of this world system. Linking arms with him in an effort to turn his kingdoms into the kingdoms of God is fraught with disaster. The very same temptation which the Lord rejected when the devil invited him into partnership. The danger of taking this path is simply that we become, quote, friends of the world and in consequence, quote, enemies of God. James 4, verse 4. What have I to do with judging, that's to say, administering outsiders, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12. Christian administration is confined to the body of believers. Quote, do you not administer those who are within the church? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 12. Some believers seem intent on trying to force the world into subjection to Christ, not realizing 
that their only tool is the gospel of the kingdom, not the power of legislation. The kingdoms of this world are not yet the kingdom of God and will not be this side of the return of Christ. Paul nevertheless expected the day to come when the world would, quote, come under the jurisdiction of the saints. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, as Moffat translates it. Paul's infectious excitement over the coming kingdom deserves to be heard often. I quote, The sufferings which we have to undergo in this phase of our career I count not worthy a thought in view of that dazzling splendor which will one day break through the clouds and dawn upon us. For the sons of God will stand forth revealed in the glories of their bright inheritance. And for that consummation, not they alone, but the whole irrational creation, both animate and inanimate, waits with eager longing, like spectators straining forward over the ropes to catch the first glimpse of some triumphal pageant. The future, and not the present, must satisfy its aspirations, for ages ago creation was condemned to have its energies marred and frustrated, and that by no act of its own. It was God who fixed this doom upon it, but with the hope that as it has been enthralled to death and decay by the fall of man, so too the creation shall share in the free and glorious existence of God's emancipated children. It is like the pangs of a woman in childbirth. This universal frame feels up to this moment the throes of travail, feels them in every part and cries out in its pain. But where there is travail, there must needs also be a birth. That's from Romans 8, verses 18 to 22, as rendered by Sanday and Hedlam in the International Critical Commentary on Romans. The coming of the kingdom. Certainly in the New Testament, the kingdom has not yet come. Speaking shortly before his death, the Lord Messiah did not expect to drink again of the wine of the Passover, the Passover cup, that is, until the kingdom had come. Luke 22, verse 18. Moreover, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, according to Matthew 27, verse 57, was, quote, waiting for the kingdom of God to come after the crucifixion. Mark 15, verse 43, and Luke 23, verse 51. Cleopas speaks for the disciples when, after the resurrection of Jesus, he expresses their hope, now apparently frustrated, that, quote, it was Jesus who was going to redeem Israel. Luke 24, verse 21. The redemption of Israel was linked in their minds with the coming 
of the kingdom in power. That event still lay in the future. Confirmation of Luke's understanding that the kingdom had not come with the ministry of Jesus is found in Luke 21, verse 31. The dramatic events which will lead up to the return of the Son of Man in power and glory herald the coming of the kingdom of God. Quote, when you see all these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is about to come. That's Luke 21, verse 31 in the Good News Bible. The nobleman in the parable of Luke 19 is to depart to a far country, in this case to heaven, to receive his authority to rule and then to return as king to initiate the kingdom. This information is given by Jesus to correct the misunderstanding that the kingdom was to be, quote, manifested immediately, as we read in Luke 19, verse 11. According to Jesus, there is no question that the kingdom will appear, but not in the immediate future. It is instructive to note that it was Jesus' proximity to Jerusalem at the time which prompted the excitement that the kingdom would come into power then. In its historical setting, this is exactly the kind of kingdom we should expect to come. Its capital would be Jerusalem, the seat of messianic government, the, quote, city of the great king, as Jesus described it, just as all the prophets had envisaged it. Jesus says nothing, then or at any time, to suggest that their conception of the kingdom was fundamentally wrong or, quote, crude, that being the disparaging term sometimes used by commentators. It is only the time of the arrival of the kingdom which needs to be clarified. No precise chronological data are offered here or anywhere in the Bible to allow setting of dates. Much harm has been done to the New Testament doctrine of the Second Coming by those who succumb to the illusion that the date of the great event may be known in advance. The parable of Luke chapter 19 makes two important points about the kingdom of God. Firstly, the kingdom has not yet arrived. That was late in the ministry of Jesus. Secondly, it will appear in power when Christ returns from the, quote, far country at the end of an unspecified period of absence. When the Messiah returns, he will reward his faithful followers by putting them in charge of urban populations, Luke 19, verse 17, and executing those of his enemies who, quote, did not want me, the Messiah, to reign over them, Luke 19, verse 27. The kingdom thus described is certainly not confined to a reign of Jesus, quote, in the hearts of men. It has authority to confer power on those who followed the Messiah and the right to banish the incorrigibly wicked. In every case where the coming 
of the kingdom is described, an event of the future is meant. Now the phrase, in the kingdom. The phrase, in the kingdom, is first found in Matthew 8, verse 11, where Jesus says that many will come and recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom, while others will be refused entry into the Messianic banquet. The event is, of course, the celebration promised by Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 8. There will be a, quote, feast prepared in this mountain, Jerusalem, at which the faithful will rejoice with Jesus. Further reference is made to this great occasion when Jesus announces at the Last Supper that he will no more drink of the wine of the Passover until he drinks it new, quote, in the kingdom of God. That's Matthew chapter 26, verse 29, and Luke chapter 22, verse 18. Jesus obviously expects to celebrate with the disciples in the kingdom when the kingdom comes. Luke 22, verse 18. The kingdom is certainly future when James and John request from Jesus prominent positions with him, quote, in your kingdom. Matthew 20, verses 20 and 21. This is a request for recognition in the future reign. Although the petition cannot be granted, Christ confirms the reality of the future kingdom and its nature as a real government by stating that the highest offices in the kingdom will be assigned to those whom God chooses. Matthew 20, verse 23. Similarly, Matthew 19, verse 28, places the inauguration of the kingdom in the new age or the new world, as the Moffat translation renders it, and also the NIV. It is then that Christ, quote, sits on his throne of glory, that is, quote, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Matthew 25, verse 31, and his authority to govern is shared with his apostles. And at that time, the righteous, quote, shine forth in the kingdom of their father. That's a quotation from Matthew 13, verse 43, citing Daniel 12, verse 3. This event occurs, quote, at the end of the age. Matthew 13, verse 40, a time when the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire. Matthew 13, verse 42. A composite version of Matthew's and Luke's description of the kingdom leaves no doubt at all that the kingdom of God is a world government associated with the return of Jesus. I quote, I tell you positively, Jesus replied, in the reborn world, when the Son of Man takes his seat on the throne of state, you too shall be seated on twelve thrones governing the twelve tribes of Israel. You are those who have stayed with me through all my trials, 
And just as my Father has promised me his kingdom, so do I now promise you that you shall eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you shall sit on thrones governing the twelve tribes of Israel. That's Matthew 19, verse 28, and Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30, from the Authentic New Testament translation by Hugh Schoenfield. Matthew tells us quite precisely when it is that Jesus is to sit on his throne of glory. I quote, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he shall sit upon the throne of his glory. Then the king will say, Inherit the kingdom. Matthew 25, verses 31 and 34. Entering and inheriting the kingdom. When the center of systematic theology is founded on the recorded words of Jesus, the kingdom of God will be seen as the sum total of biblical Christianity. Unless we strip the kingdom of its historical significance and invent new meanings for it, we will have little difficulty grasping its essential character as a real world government to be prepared for now and awaiting manifestation at the second coming. Within this messianic framework, the New Testament tells a coherent story. Without it, the New Testament can be and has been bent to suit almost any ideology. The concept of entry into the kingdom or inheriting the kingdom of God appears throughout the New Testament. When is this to occur? We find an unequivocal answer in Matthew chapter 25, where the blessed are invited to, quote, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25, verse 34. This will happen, quote, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and sits on his glorious throne. Matthew 25, verse 31. Evidently, the inheritance is to be acquired in the future at the return of Jesus. Elsewhere in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, entry into the kingdom is equated with entry into, quote, life, or, and I quote, the life of the new age, or as we might say, new age life, which has nothing whatsoever to do with popular movements under that title. Mark places entry into, quote, life at a time when the wicked living at the coming of Christ will, quote, go into Gehenna, into the unquenchable fire. Mark 9, verse 43. Entrance into, quote, life or, quote, the life of the coming age, in our versions inaccurately translated everlasting or eternal life, that life of the coming age is exactly the same as entrance into the kingdom of God. I quote, Teacher, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? If you wish to enter life, 
keep the commandments. Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Kingdom of heaven, of course, is exactly the same as the kingdom of God. Who then can be saved? So here, entering the kingdom is equivalent to being saved. In the new world, you will sit on thrones to govern the twelve tribes of Israel. So being saved is equivalent to ruling with Christ in the kingdom. Everyone who has left houses for my sake shall inherit eternal life, that is the life of the coming age of the kingdom. The concept is based on the prediction in Daniel 12, verse 2. And you'll find all that in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 29. This basic, quote, vocabulary controls the New Testament. The Christian inheritance is always placed in the future. In one verse only, Paul speaks of the transfer of Christians into the kingdom of God as already a fact. Colossians 1 verse 13. This is not untypical of Paul's thinking, since all the realities of the future may be tasted in the present. The kingdom exists now in heaven, where Jesus is preparing to establish it on earth. A single verse should not, however, be used to contradict the predominant evidence of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, nor the clear statements of Paul elsewhere in which he places Christian inheritance of and entry into the kingdom in the future. The phrase, quote, kingdom of God is normally used in St. Paul of that messianic kingdom which is to be the reward and goal of the Christian life. Hence it comes to mean the principles or ideas on which that kingdom is founded, which are already exhibited in this world. That too is a quotation from the International Critical Commentary on Romans chapter 14, verse 17. Here Paul speaks of the kingdom being, quote, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This should not be taken to contradict his sayings elsewhere, which place the inheritance of the kingdom at the second coming. Though Christians have already been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, Colossians 1.13, only a few verses later, Paul says, quote, you shall receive the reward of the inheritance of the kingdom, Colossians 3. Verse 24. The kingdom is mainly future as a new world order. It is important that we emphasize that the arrival of the kingdom of God in the New Testament is predominantly a future event, leading to a new world order on earth. The following plain statements from leading authorities provide a necessary corrective to the widely held view that the kingdom is mainly in the present. 
in the New Testament, the kingdom of God is conceived, first of all, as something in the future. Mark chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 47. Mark 14, verse 25. Matthew 13, verses 41 to 43. And chapter 20, verse 21. Luke chapter 22, verses 16 and 18. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50, and so on. That kingdom comes from God, Mark 9, verse 1, Matthew 6, verse 10, Luke 17, 20, and Luke 19, 11. Therefore, it is something man can only wait for, Mark 15, verse 43, or seek, Matthew 6, verse 33, compare with that Luke chapter 12, verse 32 and inherit 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 and following, Galatians 5, verse 21, and James 2, verse 5, but he is not able to create it by himself. That's a quotation from Eduard Schweitzer in his book, The Good News According to Mark, written in 1970. The objective analysis of the kingdom of God in Matthew, provided by the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels, ought to serve as a much-needed guide to all our thinking about the kingdom. The kingdom, the central subject of Christ's doctrine, with this he began his ministry, Matthew 4, verse 17, and wherever he went, he taught it as good news. Matthew 4, verse 23. The kingdom he taught was coming, but not in his lifetime. After his ascension, he would come as Son of Man on the clouds of heaven. Matthew 16, verse 17. Matthew 19, verse 28. And Matthew 24, verse 30. And would sit on the throne of his glory. Then the twelve apostles should sit on twelve thrones, judging or administering the twelve tribes of Israel. In the meantime, he himself must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. How else could he come? On the clouds of heaven. And the disciples were to preach the good news of the coming kingdom. Matthew 10, verse 7, and Matthew 24, verse 14, among all nations, making disciples by baptism. Matthew 28, verse 18. The body of disciples thus gained would naturally form a society bound by common aims. Hence the disciples of the kingdom would form a new spiritual Israel. Matthew 21, verse 43. The same authority goes on to say, and I quote again, in view of the needs of this new Israel, of Christ's disciples, who were to await his coming on the clouds of heaven, it is natural that a large part of the teaching recorded in the gospel should concern the qualifications required in those who hoped to enter the kingdom when it came. Thus the parables convey some lesson 
about the nature of the kingdom and the period of preparation for it. It should be sufficiently obvious that if we ask what meaning the parables had for the editor of the first gospel, the answer must be that he chose them because they taught lessons about the kingdom of God in the sense in which that phrase is used everywhere in the gospel of the kingdom which was to come when the Son of Man came upon the clouds of heaven. That's from the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. Thus the parable of the sower, this same dictionary goes on, illustrates the varying reception met with by the good news of the kingdom as it's preached amongst men. That of the parable of the tares also deals not with the kingdom itself, but with the period of preparation for it. At the end of the age, the Son of Man will come to inaugurate his kingdom. There is nothing here, nor elsewhere in this Gospel of Matthew, to suggest that the scene of the kingdom is other than the present world renewed, restored, and purified. I note that the same view of the kingdom is expressed by the author of this article on Matthew in his commentary on Matthew. That's the commentary by W.C. Allen in the International Critical Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, written in 1907. The last sentence of our quotation makes the very excellent point that Matthew does not expect believers to, quote, go to heaven, but that Jesus will come back to rule with them in a renewed earth. The perceptive reader of the New Testament will note the striking difference between the biblical view of the kingdom and what in post-biblical times was substituted for it, namely a departure of the faithful at death to a realm removed from the earth. I quote again, the kingdom Jesus taught was coming, but not in his lifetime. In the New Testament, the kingdom of God is conceived, first of all, as something in the future. So say leading analysts of the gospel records. We may add a further statement from a recognized authority on Luke. I quote, it cannot really be disputed that Luke means by the kingdom a future entity. The spiritualizing interpretation according to which the kingdom is present in the spirit and in the church is completely misleading. It is the message of the kingdom that is present, which in Luke is distinguished from the kingdom itself. Jesus knows nothing of an imminent, that's to say, already present development on the basis of the preaching of the kingdom. That's from Hans Konzelmann in his book, The Theology of St. Luke. The kingdom of God, as in some sense present in the ministry of the church, has been vastly exaggerated in proportion to the kingdom as future. Certainly the message of the kingdom 
is to be proclaimed now, and certainly the conduct fitting candidates for the kingdom must be demonstrated by Christians now. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 12 But the kingdom, properly speaking, is the kingdom to be established when Jesus returns. In confirmation of the central key to reading the New Testament with understanding, we add the statements of two further well-recognized authorities. I quote, There is nothing in Matthew, Mark, and Luke antagonistic to the eschatological, that's to say, future view of the kingdom. The kingdom is not present in any sense not reconcilable with the fact that it is also and mainly future. The references to the kingdom are prevailingly of futuristic implication. Jesus did not dissociate himself from the traditional view that the end would come in the form of a catastrophic transformation culminating in the advent of Messiah himself who would come from heaven. Jesus seems everywhere to set his seal to this view. He steadfastly contemplated a final wonder of destruction and reconstruction, which would be the perfect establishment of the kingdom of God on earth. That's from the article on eschatology in the Dictionary of Christ and the Gospels. The Grimm Thayer lexicon discusses the word kingdom in the New Testament and makes the following important point. I quote, By far more frequently, that's to say, than the use of the kingdom is present, the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God is spoken of as a future blessing. Since its consummate establishment is to be looked for on Christ's solemn return from the skies, the dead being called to life again, and the ills and wrongs which burden the present state of things being done away. That's from the article on Vasilia, or kingdom, in the Thayer's lexicon. The kingdom in the rest of the New Testament. If we examine the evidence outside Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find that the writers consistently use the term kingdom of God to denote the future reward and objective of the present Christian life. The theological word book of the Bible, among many other authorities, confirms this fact quite simply. I quote, God's reign is still to be established. It is generally in this future sense that the expression kingdom of God is used in the New Testament outside the Gospels. The kingdom of God is the dominant theme of the recorded teaching of Jesus. The Christian inheritance is identified with the kingdom of God, the earth, eternal life, salvation, the grace of life, glory, compare with that Mark 10 verse 37, glory equals Matthew 20, verse 21, which is the kingdom. A place, that's to say Canaan, the world. Kingdom of God is the most characteristic description of the inheritance. For Christians, the inheritance is future, 
The inheritance is the object of hope. Christians are heirs presumptive. Their entering into their inheritance is still to come. That's from a theological word book of the Bible, edited by Alan Richardson. Clear references to the future kingdom are found in the following texts. I quote, It is through much tribulation that we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, verse 22. Another quotation. Do you not understand that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Another quotation. People who indulge in such practices will never inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5, verse 21. Be sure of this. No one guilty of sexual vice or impurity or lust, which is as bad as idolatry, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Ephesians 5, verse 5. Another quotation. Listen, my brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? and to inherit the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? James 2, verse 5. Another quotation. By developing Christian qualities of character now, quote, there shall be supplied to you entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, verse 11. Another quotation. Once again, I will make heaven and earth quake. Therefore, let us give thanks that we are to receive an unshakable kingdom. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 26 and 28. Another quotation. Flesh and blood, that is to say human beings in their present constitution, cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. That's to say, a transformation of our present bodies into a spiritual body is required for inheritance of the kingdom. This will happen at the second coming. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 52. Another quotation. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Messiah, that is, at the second coming. See Revelation 11, verse 15. The conclusion that the kingdom is essentially the object of all Christian aspiration may be reached by anyone conducting his own careful Bible study. Confirmation appears also in standard works by biblical scholars. Quote, the preaching of the kingdom in Acts obviously refers to the kingdom of God which will begin with the parousia or second coming of Christ. That's from E. Henshin in his Acts of the Apostles. Nothing obviously distinguishes the term kingdom of God in Acts from such apocalyptic, as to say future and dramatic use it has in the Gospels. 
For example, one enters it through much tribulation, Acts 14, verse 22. That's a quotation from H.J. Cadbury in an article called Acts and Eschatology, the background of the New Testament and its eschatology, edited by W.D. Davies and D. Dauber, written in 1956. Another quotation, Luke's understanding of the kingdom is that it is still in the future and it will mean the restoration of Israel. That's from Kevin Giles in an article, Present or Future Eschatology in the Book of Acts in the Reformed Theological Review of 1981. Another quotation, in Acts, the term kingdom of God is used only of a future event. That's a quotation from E. E. Ellis in the New Century Bible Commentary on Luke. Luke's theology, says E. E. Ellis, anticipated a restored Israel, that's to say a real external kingdom on the earth, as per Acts 1.6, in the future. A final quotation correctly summarizes the New Testament evidence for the good news about a future kingdom of God on earth. What Luke describes as apostolic belief and teaching is remarkably different from what is presented as the gospel in our day. I quote, Acts includes many familiar elements in the New Testament preaching. The preachers preach the kingdom of God or the things about it. Acts 1 3, Acts 8 12, Acts 20 verse 25, and Acts 28 verses 23, 28, and 31. The term kingdom of God appears from almost the first verse to the last verse in the book of Acts. Kingdom of God constitutes a formula apparently parallel to the writer's more characteristic single verb, evangelize. That's from H.J. Cadbury's Acts and Eschatology. The presence of the kingdom. While the kingdom is explicitly a future event in the New Testament, there are a few verses presenting, in another sense, the kingdom as active in the ministry of Jesus. A serious distortion of the teaching of Jesus has occurred when the minority texts are used to the exclusion of the majority to make Jesus the teacher of a present kingdom, quote, in the heart. From start to finish, Mark's account of Jesus' ministry makes the kingdom an event which is, quote, at hand, Mark 1, verses 14 and 15 but not yet present. At the end of Mark's Gospel, the disciple Joseph of Arimathea was still, quote, waiting for the kingdom of God, Mark 15, verse 43. Matthew and Luke, however, while presenting exactly the same picture of a kingdom yet to come, occasionally view the kingdom in a different light. Matthew and Luke record Jesus as saying, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
Matthew 12, verse 28, and Luke 11, verse 20. I note that the work of C.H. Dodd, who has been called a Christian Platonist, relied heavily on these texts for his definition of the kingdom. Obviously, the arrival of the worldwide restoration of the Davidic kingdom in Jerusalem cannot be the meaning of kingdom in these two verses we've cited. Nevertheless, since the Hebrew mind, quote, grasps the totality of an idea, so says A.R. Johnson in his book, The One and the Many in the Israelite Conception of God, quoting J. Pedersen in his book, Israel, Its Life and Culture, since that is true about the grasping of the totality of an idea, kingdom of God can sometimes be extended to refer to the power of the future kingdom unleashed in the present. The power of the spirit or power of the kingdom was manifested as a sign of Jesus' messiahship and the same power is offered to Christians as a down payment or guarantee of their future inheritance of the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 22, chapter 5 verse 5, and Ephesians 1 verse 14. There's another possible explanation for the unusual expression translated, has come upon you. The same verb recurs in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 16, in connection with the wrath of God which has come upon the Jews. Paul actually believed that God's judgment was still in the future as the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10. What Paul may have meant is that the Jews were destined for the future wrath of God in the same way Jesus may have implied that those from whom demons are cast out are destined for the kingdom. See the excellent comments on this question in Kingdom of God, Kingdom of Heaven, found in the Dictionary of Jesus and the Gospels. The same article points out that, quote, during Jesus' ministry, the Kingdom of God is spoken of always as a future event. It is expected, hoped for, and prayed for but it is never said explicitly to have arrived, not even at the Last Supper. What is present is the agent of the kingdom of God, who is Jesus, in a quotation. Because of this, the kingdom may be said to be potentially present. There's another sense in which the kingdom may be said to be present. The kingdom of God was from the first associated with the personnel who would form the ruling elite, the elect, in the kingdom. Israel was God's son and firstborn, Exodus 4, verse 22, and as such constituted a royal family. I quote, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6, an appointment which formed the basis of the covenant. The New Testament teaches that this honor of potential kingship 
is now offered to the church. Jesus, quote, has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Revelation 1 verse 6. You'll find that also in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, Revelation 5 verse 10, and Revelation 20 verses 1 to 6. Thus it may well be that when Matthew records Jesus' saying, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence, and violent men seize it by force. Matthew 11, verse 12. John was in prison at the time of this remark. See Matthew 11, verse 2. The meaning is here clearly that the royal family is being mistreated by hostile rulers of the present evil system. Compare with that Daniel 7, verses 21 and 25, where the power of Antichrist wears down and overcomes the messianic community. The meaning here then is that the royal family is being mistreated by hostile rulers of the present evil systems. A similar reference to the presence of the kingdom in its royal personnel may be found in Luke 17, 20 and 21, where Jesus diverts the attention of the Pharisees away from the future kingdom in an effort to get them to see that the kingdom of God in the person of its monarch is standing right there in their presence, in your midst. Luke 17 verse 21. However, a better explanation of that text in Luke 17 verse 21 may be found in the fact that the kingdom is expected to be visible and universal as the lightning flashing from east to west. It will not, in other words, just be locally found and should not be searched for by rushing either here or there. Summary. A world of information is involved in the Christian gospel of the kingdom. The genius of Christianity is concentrated in the word kingdom, which takes in the whole range of God's plan to restore sound government to the earth. The essential saving information is often withheld from the public, though they are deluged with appeals to accept, quote, the gospel or, quote, receive Christ. In the absence, however, of any clear description of Jesus' message. Centuries of tradition have contrived to convince Bible readers and churchgoers that the kingdom of God is mainly an abstract rule of God in the heart of the believer or, quote, heaven at death. This is in flat contradiction to the New Testament. Though the Christian documents recognize that the power of the future kingdom has already intruded into the present evil world system, the kingdom has come upon individuals, that's to say, when they're freed from the demon oppression as found in Matthew 12, verse 28, and Luke 11:20. 20. 
Nevertheless, the kingdom of God is firstly and predominantly the new world order which cannot and will not arise on earth until Christ returns at his second coming to inaugurate it. This fact is revolutionary in its implications for the understanding and practice of the Christian faith. It means that the whole concept of the Christian future as a departure of the believer at death, quote, to heaven, is a misrepresentation of the biblical teaching. The Bible views the future in terms of hope for rulership with Christ on earth at the second coming. Attempts to move the millennial kingdom of Christ and the saints into the present, known as so-called amillennialism, these are symptomatic of the dislocation of the biblical scheme which has occurred through a fundamental misunderstanding about the kingdom. This affects the gospel and every facet of New Testament teaching. Our whole traditional structure is colored by Augustinian Platonism, which continues to receive uncritical acceptance by whole denominations claiming to base their faith solely on the Bible. Underlying the rejection of the biblical view of the future is an anti-Jewish and anti-Messianic tendency. Churches have fallen under the spell of the notion that what is, quote, spiritual cannot also be related to a new political order on earth. Theology, therefore, constantly suppresses or ignores the obvious messianic themes of both testaments or tries to, so to speak, reinterpret them and make them fit its own Platonized version of the faith. This continuing, quote, soft peddling of the plain teaching of the apostles about the future prevents whole sections of the Bible from having their intended impact as a stimulus to hope and persistence in view of the glorious future of our world, a whole dimension of the New Testament, indeed its Hebrew framework, is in varying degrees missing from much contemporary theology and preaching. In biblical Christianity, the future is so much more sharply defined, making a correspondingly greater impact on life now. Recovery of the New Testament dynamic will go hand in hand with a clarification of the good news or gospel about the kingdom of God. The recognition that Jesus was a Jewish apocalyptic restorationist preacher of the kingdom and thoroughly versed in the Hebrew Bible enables Bible readers to approach his teaching intelligently. Jesus ought to be accepted for what he obviously claimed to be, the Jewish Messiah commissioned to announce and further the divine program for the rescue of mankind. Desmond Ford was right 
when he observed that, quote, Old Testament prophecy teaches that the kingdom of God will be ushered in by a divine intervention rather than through the natural processes of history, and it is this viewpoint which is indispensable to apocalyptic eschatology. Jesus shared this outlook. At the quotation from Desmond Ford's The Abomination of Desolation in Biblical Prophecy, written in 1979, an amazing revolution would take place in churches if converts understood that simple concept. A major clarification of the kingdom would occur too if the seventh chapter of Daniel were understood with New Testament Christians as the framework in which they worked out their hope for themselves and the world. Only after the defeat of the final anti-Christian power does the kingdom of God become the possession of the Son of Man and the saints. Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 to 27.